Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus $30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate. Hello and welcome. It's your Everyone is Sick International Break Management Trip Podcast. This is your host, Gabe Lesra, um, and I am here with my also ill colleagues, <laughs> Kian Silvati. Hey, Kian. Hey, what's and going on? Omar Vin. Um, so we're all sick. This show is going to be um, kind of, uh, I mean, look like this is the international break for folks this is this is the international break show i don't think you guys care as much because you didn't um have as many questions and frankly it is i mean i don't know the uh, i was joking with some of my friends um that the <laughs> the uefa nations league is about is going to be approved to be about as useless as the uh league of nations the failed um early 20th century uh international body i thought was pretty funny but that's it's like, supposed to give us meaning to these international I, I actually i actually kind of like it but mm. i may be biased because i was listening to the theme music today after a game ended and the theme music is really damn good hey that's so cool. that so that may may have me a little biased but i don't know for some reason i do feel like like the games have a little more meaning because in my opinion they especially the, the spain england game um the players like acted like it had more meaning and so like i mean there was a really good tweet like that that said the uefa nations league proves how all trophy struck i like think about what makes the champions league more important what makes it more important is the fact that we all think it's more important um and if so essentially the only thing that's really going to give these these batches more meaning is if the players think so and then eventually the fans think so yeah. so it's like it's it's a bit of a gamble I personally think it's going to pan out over the next couple of years because I think the players understand how it plays into the results. They understand that they're generally going to be playing teams of equal quality. Yeah. Um, especially and, and for the bigger teams, that means Germany versus Spain, like that type of matchup we're going to be seeing a lot. So I think they're going to take it more seriously and it'll, it'll make it slightly more entertaining to watch. But international football is still international football. And I, I watched a couple of games that, that weren't so great. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that, I mean... It's the it's it is actually I think objectively objectively better um, than I mean I, I I watched Brazil versus USA which was just an absolutely atrocious game and uh, I think I think these the UEFA Nations League at least has the benefit of like you said trophies are socially constructed uh, and so if we decide to care about them. The trope, it, the games will become better and more important. I mean, it's just that's just a fact. Uh, and I think the 
I mean, I, I think the federations care marginally more about these games. Uh, I mean, if only because they actually do play into, as far as I can understand, qualification for the Euros and the World Cup. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, even psychologically, it was like we had a we had Germany play today, and then for, as far as Real Madrid players are concerned, we had Wales, and then we had um, France, yep. and we totally just disregarded Germany because that one was a friendly. Like we just it gave yeah. us like this like mental closure. Oh, we don't have to cover it because <laughs> it's a friendly. No one cares, and we're already spread thin. So yeah, at least in that sense, it actually kind of helps us prioritize what we need to do and write about. Because um, oh, yeah. I have no idea what Cross did, to no. be honest. But yeah, the yeah. only thing I mean, I just heard because like a lot of people surprisingly seem to be watching the Germany game on my timeline, um, and it, the consensus seemed to be that Cross was like the best player or, or one of the better players, which doesn't really surprise me. I mean, I mean he's generally an extremely reliable player for the national team, so no new news on that front. Let's jump into um, just just quickly recap. I think the bigger games that that I mean, I think the obvious one is Spain, England, and um, I think one way that we're going to fill out this show is we're going to um, well, I I'm going to make up for the fact that this is going to be a shorter show by playing the audio of an interview that I did on um, Love Sport Radio talking about Spain, England. <clears throat> so we'll run we'll run that also. But I just want to talk about this this match and. It's an, it was an interesting one because it was uh, the debut of Luis Enrique as Spain manager. Um, and uh, it was also, I mean, it was the tougher, one of the tougher debuts for a new manager in the international game. Uh, I, can't, I mean, the, obviously the toughest one was the most recent one with Hierro. But, you know, if you're normally if, as an international manager, your, your, your debut is the kind of easier friendly but this one was spain away to england a place it only won twice ever uh and uh he goes in and he ro- he rolls out a lineup that you know pretty similar to some of the other stuff we'd seen but it it i think he executed it well and they executed their plan well i mean uh keon what did you think of luis enrique's debut yeah, I mean, I th- I I covered this one. I also did a post game podcast on Churros Tacticas about it. Um, I thought it was overall exciting enough that it was a, it was a solid debut. Like we can go over the controversy at the end and all this. And England had their definitely had their moments. They have a lot of exciting young talent, and um, they certainly took the game to Spain yeah. towards the end. Um, I thought overall it was it was it was promising, um, and. I think there were the only two or three, like, I guess, debatable ones is like the fact that Jordi Alba's not in the squad. And, you know, he may or may not get back into it if, if you know, if Luis Enrique and him work it out. But I thought Marcos Alonso was okay. Um, but at the same time, he struggled defensively on that right flank a little bit. And Ramos had to do some mop up job there. Um, I thought a lot of criticism for Isco. And this, this by the way, for the life of me, I, I can't comprehend. So you guys know how. Every year we have somebody that people just love to hate. Um, Last season it was Benzema. The year before that it was Bale. And Bale probably got some of it last year too with his injuries. It's been Isco for like a few months now. Yeah. And the the main argument is that he slows down the game and all this. I think last season a lot of the issues he had was that it was just like this schematic chaos where where Isco was like, okay, where do I play? And Zidane just drew up um, a big... I don't know, a big uh, 
<laughs> I just go anywhere you want. Like just go roam right. and, and do, and that caused a lot of defensive dominoes and players spread thin all over the pitch. And you know it was well documented. I think it was less on him and and, and more on the tactics. Um, I think it's also overblown that he kills attacks. Like if you like if you looked at Spain during the World Cup, I'm not sure if Spain have any offense without him yeah. doing the way they were playing because it was just very possession-oriented side to side. Isco was the only one trying to actually break the lines a little bit and play vertical. In this particular game, he didn't misplace any passes in the first half. I think he let, he had two key passes, which you know no one else was creating anything. No one else had more than two key passes in this game. He had the most forward passes of any player in, in, in the game. A lot of great defensive work. Thief possession from Kane once brilliantly to ignite a counterattack. Another another sequence in the second half where he had a great last ditch tackle. And if I if did from I'm going to just announce this. It is a blockable offense on Twitter. Like no warnings. <laughs> if you tweet me and say he is not supposed to defend, that's not what he's on the pitch for. I don't like it's you have such a lack of understanding of how football works. If you really think football f- attackers are just supposed to stand at the penalty spot and jump up and down on a on a <laughs> on a pogo stick and head header and head you know crosses in, there's so much more to football, um, especially in Lopetegui scheme, especially in a Spanish scheme, that you're asked to do so much without the ball in terms of your counter pressing, yeah. in terms of. Um, your cohesive press with the rest of the team, closing passing lanes, winning the ball high up the pitch. By the way, like, because I remember, I don't know if you remember, someone like messaged us about this when the whole Benzema thing should hit the fan last season where everyone was like, why are you talking about Benzema's defending, blah, blah, blah. And uh-huh. they said Raul didn't defend. And we oh, were like, yeah, bullshit. Like, you know, uh-huh. Raul, really Raul is one of the best off-ball strikers I've ever seen. Like, he was just so intelligent, and that was half of his game. Half of the reason you create offensive chances is because of your defensive work. So that's just disclaimer. It's just automatic block forever and reporting to Twitter. I can't believe someone would say Raul didn't defend. I mean, I, I will also say that one of the things that Raul was famous for doing was running in and stealing those those balls off of the last defender and getting a one-on-one with the keeper, just doing it like... Because he was so savvy and knew where the pass was going and and was in in the right space and was working hard enough to make that, you know, to run that entire length of the pitch to do it. He he was famous for that. I mean, there is, I think, some. I don't want to be. I don't want to like try to to give uh, fan the flame to this. I think wrongheaded argument, but there is some. I think credence to the notion that Isco does have his own pace and sometimes doesn't seem to uh, to adapt to maybe what the, the the his teammates are looking for in terms of you know everyone wants to move the ball very quickly now and so, so but sometimes they'll slow it down and all this stuff and maybe I mean like I think that's what the sometimes what people are reacting to when they when they talk about him killing attacks is because that you know sometimes the Spain or Real Madrid or whoever wanted to go faster, move the ball quicker up the pitch. But Isco will on occasion look for the more contained, more calm pass. And you know what? Um, that's fine with me. I'll just, I'll just say it. I'm fine with that. If he's, he, he also was the, the offensive engine for Spain in the world cup. It's, you know, if it, if you need to, if you want to know what like Isco brings to a side, you just look at that Spain squad in the World Cup and go and look at the numbers. He his stats were incredible in the World Cup. I mean, just just out of this world. So, I I I, I get sometimes what people are saying, but 
you also have to balance that against the vast, vast amount of, of, of benefit he brings to any team that he's on. Here's the thing. There, are, there, was, there was one or two sequences yesterday where he made, maybe could have looked vertical at the same time. Um, he did it and he slowed the game down and Spain were winning at that point. And by the way, Anton Griezmann literally does this at one yeah. nothing in the fifth minute of every Atletico game, and no one cares. Um, it's just, it's just these are stylistic things. These are schematic things. And and don't get me wrong, there are moments where he can. But I mean, if you, you know what the equivalent is, is that when you write a four thousand word article, and you've done a ton of research, it's taking you a week. Personal experience. Your fingers are like bloody. You're you're scientifically half dead and someone goes in and finds one word in the article they don't agree with and blah that's it uh, and, right. and you don't hear the end of it Isco does something once a game where maybe he slows down the attack and count, cancels out everything yeah. else he does and that's, that's what, the part and that's what that the, there's got to be some ob- objectivity like and that's what there. the people who are always trying to to have one person that they're hating on do like it was always well, Benzema missed this shot, or 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 you know, Bale uh, didn't make this pass to Ronaldo when he should have. Even in an otherwise objectively good game for the players, I mean, that's always what the what people are doing. And then the people that they've decided that they're gonna love this year, um, they they don't nitpick at all, despite the fact that every player has bad. I mean, except for maybe you know the absolute top of the line players everyone has game in every game will have time where they where they make a bad decision slow down the attack any of the things that these people complain about miss a shot i mean bale in his game for wales was so incredibly good but even in that game he he still did things that maybe he weren't the uh, actual optimal decision at the point in time so i mean what <laughs> uh to 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 just nip and grab this one, these one moments out of these people, these players. I mean, sometimes I get saying there is like a game defining time, like miss or whatever. Like if, if you really, if it's a zero, zero game that ends zero, zero, but let's say whoever they're criticizing Benzema, whoever had, had a one-on-one miss. Yeah. You can kind of elevate that bad moment, but these times with East go aren't that they really aren't. They're just, these kind of stylistic moments when he he decides to make exactly like you said make the Griezmann pass backwards. Yeah, I I mean I I agree with everything you said. I don't really have much to add on to that. Um, so like to shift gears a little bit, still staying on this match, like just quickly discuss the tactics. I it's it's kind of already faded to the back of my mind because this was one of yeah. the first games <laughs> we saw. But what I do want to say is I. Well, before I get to that, I'll just quickly mention that Ramos Ramos played quite well, um, especially considering the fact that he was booed the entire game for because <laughs> I guess because of, because of the Mohammed Salah incident. I mean, like I, I guess people still haven't gotten over that. Like, and he's forever going to be the villain for this, which I'm sure Ramos doesn't care about. Perhaps even embraces, um, but he performed well under that. Uh, Nacho. Nacho didn't necessarily look the best this game. You know, he he looked a little exposed by some of the runs in behind by Rashford, who had it, who had a pretty good game. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of want to comment on England, even though it isn't that Real Madrid related because there isn't a Real Madrid player there. I I was waiting to see how England would react after their their defeat in the World Cup. You know, how what kind of effect that would have mentally on them, and. 
you know, they came out and they played a really, really good game, even though they lost in my mind, this solidified the fact that this England team is actually really, really good. And we have to get used to England finally being good on the world stage. I, I mean, I was, I was also looking for things to be improved. So one of England's issues in the world cup was creating, creating chances through open play. And they had a lot of open play chances versus Spain. And I thought their verticality was a lot better. I mean, there's, there's still some things with like the, the naivety of Southgate's tactics, like trying to play um, Deli Alley and Wingard and midfield. Like those are still debatable decisions, but the verticality in their passing was really, really good. I mean, anytime Saul and, and, and Thiago were just a little bit out of sync with their compactness, England were exploiting that and firing balls in, in, in behind that midfield line right. and immediately attacking Spain's, Spain's back line. And if it wasn't for De Gea, Rashford probably could have scored twice. So, you know, if you, if you, if you even care about international football, you know, a little bit in these times, like I, I suggest paying attention to England because they're quite an interesting team. And I think tactically they're going places that they've never gone before in their history. So who do you think, how much of that do you think was due to Spain just imploding a little bit? Because I thought the way this game unfolded, um, England were quite solid in their low block, but didn't really, they weren't really in position to break. Um, and I think one of the turning points was when I believe it was Thiago who came off. And then there was that patch after that where it just looked like vertically they just they could not defend anything England were doing like there was that really brilliant Rashford chance where he just shot it at De Gea he was trying to curl it far post um I mean I'm not taking anything away from England I feel like Spain kind of shot themselves in the foot a little bit because they were ahead and I mean they just having said this they won the game they were ahead <laughs> um they were ahead they had control they were keeping possession it seemed like a couple substitutions just kind of maybe threw them off it's possible. I, I, I do agree with the fact that Spain were largely in control in like for the for the beginning stages. I mean, besides the fact that like Shaw had a really good assist early in the game and that gave England a huge boost. But as soon as Spain equalized, which was two minutes later, they largely looked in control because they were dominating possession. And that's why I said um, having Deli Ali and Lingard in a three-man midfield is perhaps naive in a game where it's difficult for, for you to control the ball. I mean, Spain only had 55% possession, but still, it, it's a bit risky to play two essentially attacking midfielders. You know, Lingard often playing out wider as a striker for Manchester United in a low block, you know, against a team that's going to dominate the ball. But I guess when Spain made that substitution, like you mentioned, with Thiago going off, it... It, it, it ended up benefiting them because they, they were able to go vertical to Ali and Lingard who were positioned really high. And then it was also, they were playing these nice kind of, I don't want to say long balls, but lofted passes from, from the fullbacks into, into, into the channels in the half spaces that Lingard and Ali were always really well positioned in because that's kind of their natural space. And I think that just suited the slightly more chaotic game that it became. So yeah, I mean, I'd agree with you here. And I think Spain perhaps, you know, hurt themselves a little bit. But England took advantage of it in a way that I don't think they would have, you know, under under older uh, older coaches and older personnel. Yeah. Um, quick, before we move on from this game, quick shout out to Luke Shaw. Uh, I, I don't know what the update is because I haven't checked anything on him in the past 24 hours, but just has the worst luck. And there was like a two-minute sequence, like where he had a brilliant last-second tackle 
and then that gorgeous assist. Um, it, yeah, I just hope he recovers. I feel bad. He for him. is finally good. playing well. I mean, I mean, not finally, but I mean, like, he is really playing up to the. I, I mean, it, it's rare that, in my view that the kind of super hyped English players end up, you know, really being as good as the, the press. Their press says that they're going to be, and I'm really impressed by him. And it just it just absolutely blows that he got injured. Um, this is the problem with international football. I think we all feel <laughs> that way. We've definitely, um, I definitely have expressed some version of this sentiment on um, every international break podcast for the last 10 years or however long we've been doing this show. It sucks that he got injured. That's terrible. Um, and, yeah. and absolute, like, you know, all love to him and all, I mean, just bad luck. It's just bad luck. Um, it it was hilarious. I thought that Sergio Ramos was booed, um, especially because it was it was clear that that meant that there's just um, a lot of uh, Liverpool fans there. Because one of the things that you always see in like his mentions, if you ever go on his accounts, is like the English people fighting with each other. And it's not just that, like the Spanish people or whoever. It's amazing. It's like the Liverpool fans will come and be like, you suck, like you are a thug or blah, blah. And the Manchester United people would be like, uh, <laughs> you're salty much. And then like, all the, it's just, they all fight. It's, it's basically he, his play has become a meme that the English people all fight about. And it was fun to hear him. I would figure that like half the stadium would cheer for him. <laughs> But I guess he was playing against England, so it didn't really matter. But, uh, yeah, if so I, go ahead. Yeah, if I may, I just wanted, before we moved on from this game, I just wanted to mention Carvajal. There's not that much to talk about, so we're not going to, like, there's not much to move on to. So, <laughs> like, we both Except about to move on just on. to our beds. Quickly. Oh, yeah, we got <laughs> to our beds, right. And we're going to answer your questions, though. There are not even that many of those. So go so, ahead, dude. Yeah, I I just want to mention Carvajal because I think he was actually Madrid's best performer on the night. Um, he he's looked he started looking better, like yeah. the more like the the real Carvajal that that we've gotten used to over the past years. Um, in this game, he was especially good. I think Shaw got the better of him in the opening the opening encounters, but once Shaw went off, I think Carvajal basically locked down the right side, and especially yeah. near the very end of the game, where, when England were applying a lot of pressure. It looked like they were going to equalize. And there was, I think, nine minutes of extra time added on because that Shaw injury took up a huge amount of time. Like, there was concussion protocol and everything. Um, Carvajal made a really, really good one-versus-one yeah. sliding tackle. that actually, like, sealed the win for Spain. And that just summed up a very solid performance for me. Yeah, he's been... Um, I mean, as we expected when Aldo Othola came on, he's been... There's a fire. He's just one of those guys that seems to play better when there's competition for his spot. So, yeah, he looked really good, I thought, too. Um, and this is, like, we talked about this on last week's podcast. I think Gabe couldn't make that. That was Gabe's bachelor weekend. Um, <laughs> uh, it was. Pro- probably having more fun than us. But, uh, yeah, we and we spoke at length about him because he was a standout in that game, too. And um, to me, the best sign is because even when Carvajal um, – was going through his rut last season and it was going, it was a big one. He was still, his defensive presence was actually quite good. So when he starts coupling that defensive work with just being in a constant danger in the overload um, and, and connecting well with the crossfield switches and those runs. And as you know, we discussed last week, there's so much ball dominant players on the left flank that 
a simple switch will break the defense and Carvajal isn't making those runs to do that. So I think it's a, I think this scheme will also benefit him in that sense. Yeah, I was really impressed. I mean, I, I'm genuinely impressed by Luis Enrique, who I didn't have that much. Um, I didn't. I didn't have that much. I won't say respect. I just. I didn't have that much faith in him as a manager to come in and do this. But this was a very good debut, I thought, for him. He did seem to to get what they needed to do tactically. I also think that Isco. Uh, didn't you know, he? He did seem more like he was uh, playing a better tactical role and less of a. He was less of a liability on the, the like defensive counter and whatnot. So, I was impressed. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any more to say on this game. I figured, Keon, we would let you quickly talk about Gareth Bale, who and you covered him sure. today um, uh, in his <clears throat> match against Denmark. I will say that his match against Ireland was incredible. Uh, and he was yeah. just um, showed why he he can be that like actual Ballon d'Or caliber player. He is that he is, and yeah. he's been looking great. So, talk to us about today today where he played Denmark. Well, and the caveat against Ireland was that it, it was it was Ireland, it was Ireland, and, uh, right? Like they- uh, and they were shockingly bad. And I, I mean, I don't even know where to start with them. But the thing with Denmark is, I thought actually Wales were the better team for a good chunk of like the first half, and um, and Denmark, like Sisto was just like shockingly, uncharacteristically bad, just giving the ball away prolifically. He could not, he could the ball just would not stay on his feet, and he was misplacing passes. I think it was six. At halftime, when I checked, he had lost the ball six times and misplaced five, like, really easy passes. Um, Ericsson was carrying them. Ericsson was brilliant. I believe Ohm was watching this game. I'm not sure. But Ericsson really was a stand Yeah, I was watching it as well. And as good as Wales played, I thought, that that moment when Ericsson popped up for that goal at the top of the box, it was shockingly just bad switching off from Wales. Like, they had so many bodies back there. No one picked up Ericsson. Um, And so Bale, in both games, was... The spear had an attack. He was the highest player up the pitch. Um, and I guess the difference is essentially that Denmark were just not a black hole the way Ireland were. And Bale really couldn't stay on the shoulder of the defensive line because he really wasn't, they weren't getting any opportunities to counterattack much. Um, so he dropped a lot deeper. So even though he was deployed as a striker um, at the top of the, the formation, he was basically just all over the place. If you look at his heat map, he spent a lot of time deep on the right flank, for example, just to get the ball and get involved and 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 not yeah. be isolated as much. Um, having said that, had had some really brilliant touches. Nearly scored a goal on the counter attack. Had some nice passes and crosses. Um, and then, I mean, we've all seen the goal against Ireland by now. It was brilliant. And what impressed me, I want to say something also about the other players on Wales. I don't know if how many people actually care, but um, you know they have some nice pieces. We all know about Ramsey and Joe Allen or whatever. Ampadu, um, seventeen-year-old kid. This is the second game I watched him now for Wales, and he just looks amazing. He just yeah. he drops deep as a deep-lying playmaker. Always looks vertical. Just doesn't give the ball away. Like very solid. I think he's like an impressive. I I think like a few months ago, Castillo were linked with them, and I had I didn't really know much about him. But now that I've seen him, I'm I'm intrigued. I mean, he's only seventeen, and he's like really just really good. I didn't, so I didn't watch this one. So I'm, I don't have anything else to add to that. Um, I watched chunks of France, Netherlands. I don't think there's anything to say. Waran looked great as usual. Um, shout out Olivier Giroud for finally scoring. Um, he didn't shoot once 
I don't know if you knew that. He didn't have a single. Uh, uh, my oh, Shoot, I had this hilarious stat from him from the World Cup. It's, I don't think it's, he didn't shoot once, but I don't think he had one shot on target during the World Cup, yeah. despite being the yeah. nine for the World Cup champion. <laughs> so shout out to him for finally scoring. Congratulations, Olivier. Saving that game for France, too. Beautiful goal. Yeah. <laughs> I had tweeted, like, just before Giroud scored that, I, I tweeted that I would really love to see Benzema, like the current informant, <laughs> linking up with Mbappe and Griezmann in it. It it always jinx. Like, my tweets never fail to jinx. But I stand by that, though, Keon. You're right. It would be amazing. So, yeah, I think so. Yeah, right? Because, like, uh, I don't know if that goal changes everything. I no. think Benzema Jeez. would really fit, feel well right now. Yeah, uh, and it, imagine how even much better this this France team would be with him. That's, that's crazy. Um, all right, let's do some questions. Oh, what do you think? Played really I, cool. yeah, I mean, he did. we can move to questions. Like, I mean, I don't know if you – I could. I covered three games that I could quickly go over, or we could just move to questions. Um, uh, which three games did you cover? Um, because, yes, why don't you just give us – yeah. Okay, so like I'll I'll go really quickly. So like one was the Portugal friendly with Croatia, which which they drew one one. Ronaldo interestingly decided not to join the Portuguese national team for this round of, of the international break for whatever reason. So Bruma was actually the player with the number seven, and so surprisingly Portugal were actually the better side. Um, I, I mean, and and they were a lot better in possession than I'm used to seeing them be. Um, you know. Croatia were largely on the back foot, and and even when they had a lot of possession in, in the second half, when Portugal decided to see, sit in a deep block, they just weren't able to do too much because, you know, as as is usual with this Croatian team, their midfield organization just isn't that great. So, Modric, again, another surprise was that he didn't perform. You know, rather, he, I mean, I wouldn't say he performed badly, but it wasn't anything special. It was your classic six out of ten performance, fairly mm-hmm. average, misplaced. A couple of like you know what were at, what were, what what were supposed to be clever clever passes that he'd usually make. Kovacic was actually the standout for Croatia. There were like five or six times where he just burst through the middle, past two or three players with that excellent close control and acceleration. Had a really good shot, created a couple of chances. He was definitely a bright spot. And I, I've also seen some of his games with Chelsea. It looks like he's getting on really well. Um, so that's good news for us, as he still is on loan despite. However, Kovacic might feel about that. Um, yeah, then I also watched Scotland versus Belgium. I, I don't think anyone cares about that, so I'll quickly just say Courtois, besides one long shot that he flopped at a little bit, was he was fairly good. He made two to three really key saves at the end. Even though the game was pretty much over, um, they were they were good saves. One of them was a really good one-on-one save when the, when the, when the striker really should have scored. Um, so that was good to see. And then one of the more important games I watched was Germany versus France in the UEFA Nations League game. And it was nil-nil. That was one of the more boring games that I watched. And it was mainly just because of the way the two teams approached it. So, like, something interesting that, again, another interesting tactical element I was looking at was the way Lowe was going to change his his tactics following, you know, getting knocked on the World Cup group stages. He went with a really interesting lineup. He played... Antonio Rudiger, who who's a center back, he played him at left back. He played Joshua Kimmich, who's usually a right back but can play in a lot of a lot of places. Played him in a double pivot with Kroos. Timo Werner was out wide, and Marco Royce was up top. So, I think the aim here was was to make that team more stable on the counter attack, which is why he had a center back at left back, and he had a right back in defensive midfield. 
um, because that was a huge issue, right, in the World Cup, especially starting that game versus Mexico, Germany, which is getting carved open on the counter. And it largely worked this game. France didn't really have that many great counterattacking opportunities, but Germany didn't change in possession. It was still really slow, still a lot of short passes. The only time they really created any danger was was from two situations. When Kroos was switching the ball over over to the opposite flank to exploit the fact that Mbappe didn't really track back defensively. So Matuidi had to like kind of tuck in and that gave space on our side for Kroos to to, to switch balls over to that side and then on close set pieces those were really where where Germany had the best chances and then Veron was Veron was fairly good I think you can maybe argue on some of the set pieces he could have done a little better but he cleared pretty much everything that came pretty much all I have to report from the international um, games I watched um, not too good much job. he also mopped up one of Umtiti's mistakes day oh yeah yeah I <laughs> um, he, which he kind of also did in the World Cup. I had a question for you, Om, because you watched Germany and I didn't. Uh, do you think at this point they just need a new direction? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Lowe has been in charge for 12 years, I think, if I'm not wrong, like since 2006 post-World Cup, hmm. um, when Klinsmann was the manager, I think, right? Um, Bring back Klinsmann. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, really, I really think they do because... Low, he's like one of those managers. He, he's kind of like Del Bosque in that, like he doesn't really play juego de posición, but he kind of is like gravitating towards this idea of possession football as a philosophy in and of itself. And mm-hmm. I guess that can work. It always can work for a while. Like in in the 2014 World Cup, it was really great. Like Kroos putting in an all-time performance. He should have won the Golden Ball, arguably. Um, but it just becomes stale after a while because you know you start to lose ideas. The fact that Pep Guardiola is no longer at Bayern Munich means that the players aren't coming in and you know implementing juego de posición by themselves. You know, and the managers just kind of benefiting from that. You know, it, when when you don't play in that system for a while, and they haven't played in it for a while now because they haven't had a, a juego de posición coach there since Pep left. You know, you tend to forget the repetitions and all of that. We saw that with Barcelona under um, <clears throat> Tata Martino. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. I think that's become an issue for Germany. A lot of their possession is stale. It's not vertical enough. And Lowe even said, like, in the World Cup, he was trying to perfect possession football too much. It's just, I, I, I just don't see them going any higher than, than what they've achieved before with this manager. And I think it's time, it's time to get a new coach in charge. But for whatever reason... He just seems to have like an iron grip on this spot, and he's not going to lose it until he wants to. I really thought they would. They, yeah, I thought they would. I totally agree with that. I just thought they would move on after the World Cup. Like, it's very rare to see see a coach that does that badly stay on for another tournament. Uh, I mean, it's we saw it with. Uh, I think Del Bosque was the last one for Spain. Who and it's really just these coaches that won the world the the previous edition of the tournament. But like, I mean, damn. I mean, we saw the we saw the exact same thing with Spain. What I'm saying right now, you could just replace you know Low with Del Bosque in Germany with Spain, and none of my analysis changes because this what the what I'm describing is is pretty much the exact same issue. Yeah. Like. I remember Keon was really following like the the like the 
the end of like that Del Bosque reign. I remember all his tweets talking about all the issues. <laughs> and it was essentially the fact that like the tactical scheme was stale. Like, yeah. And I mean, there was also issues with team selection or stuff, but they simply needed a new direction. And Lopetegui, Lopetegui provided that. He he provided. He still you know kept that whole possession idea, but he brought back you know, Juego the Posicion into the team and that just gave them new life. And obviously we never we never got to see that in the World Cup. But I think someone like that for Germany who who kind of keeps that possession emphasis just doesn't completely change it because you don't want to do that when you don't have that much time to build a tactical identity in the national side, but brings more structure and verticality to the attack, then I think I think you'll see it see it meet benefits. But but Lowe seems to have yeah. a, a better grip on this job than Del Bosque ever did. And I thought Del Bosque had had a really strong grip on that job. Wait, do you mean on the Spanish national team job or on the, the Galactic Spanish job? Na- yeah, okay. I'm sorry, Spanish national team. No, okay, Del, okay. Bosque, yeah, yeah. Del Bosque and his I was time confused for a second. Yeah, Del Bosque yeah. and his time at Real Madrid is a totally different story. It was a totally different era of tactics. Yeah. I thought Del Bosque was perfect for that time, but like, you know, obviously like the decade after, like it became a totally different story. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know if you agree, like I was speaking for you there, Keon, but I, I distinctly remember some of your comments on it being, you know, in the same vein as what I'm saying now. Well, Del Bosque's football with Spain, like I think Gabe will probably relate to this because yeah. he's a Spanish national team fan. I like Euro two thousand eight. That football was much brought me a lot more joy than two thousand ten. Uh, That's the the, the actual football. Yeah, <laughs> the, the but winning two thousand twelve kind of gave us a, like it was actually also nice too. I mean, it's just it's kind of a subjective thing. I know, but I, I just thought I like I enjoyed them under Aragonés a bit more. Um, and hmm. I thought I think Del Bosque's football is a bit kind of out of the Stone Age because um, he just kind of resurfaced and, and, and <laughs> made a double pivot with Xavi Alonso and Busquets. And I understand you kind of have to fit all these players in, but Xavi was playing like really high up the pitch. Anyways, it's just it. But I I think the point is that sometimes you just need something fresh. That's all. I totally agree with that. Um, and I think we're seeing that with Spain too. So it's. Um... Anyways, it's it's. Uh, I think it's time to move on to uh, to questions. Um, I don't. I can't I, believe we've talked this. Long I can't before. believe we've talked this long. Also, so <laughs> um, you always say it's going to be short. You know, I, I know. I know. Uh, Sajid Rayaz asks us, um, with the international break here, it's probably the right time to ask the question: Who are Real Madrid's counterparts in international football? For me, it has to be Brazil. Apart from the obvious parallels, like both being the most successful and iconic teams in football, I see other parallels too. The 50s of Real Madrid and the 58 through 70 Brazil teams, the Stefano and Pelé, the underachieving Galacticos, and the fantastic four of Brazil, Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, Adriano, Kaká in the 2000s, Brazil's long quest for their sixth, similar to our quest for La Decima, etc. What are your thoughts? (laughs) I mean, Uh, go ahead, Om. I mean, I don't want to be a spoil sport, but like, I don't know. Like, I'm just not such a huge fan of comparing club teams to like international teams. Like, it just doesn't work for me. Like, I just, I just don't see the parallels anywhere. I mean, unless you're talking about a national team that was essentially derived straight from a club team. So, you know, 2010 Spain being derived from 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 2010 Barcelona, or 2014 Germany being derived from 2014 Bayern Munich. I don't really see the comparisons. I feel like you really have to force it 
but maybe I'm just being a spoil sport and I'm not like I'm You not, are I'm being fun. a spoil sport. I'm not fun at parties. I, I mean I just don't see like, <laughs> just not on, fun a, at on a tactical level and like you know, because usually I mean, even back then in international football, I think Jonathan Wilson, like one of the preeminent tactical historians, he wrote great book in the inverted pyramid detailing the history of tactics very interesting you know simple way to understand um he 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 was on the record saying that we kind of tracked in the 50s 60s 70s tactical evolutions through through international football but we only did that because those were the games that were on tv at the time always always since going back to like even the 50s Tactical evolution has always happened at the club level before being transferred to the international level. And that shouldn't surprise anyone. It happens at the club level because that's where the resources are. That's where more games are. I mean, so it's just always more sophisticated there. So it's just, for me, I just really have to force a comparison between club and international teams because they just operate on two different spheres entirely. But again, like I said, I'm probably being a spoiled sport and I'm just not being fun enough. So be interested to see what you guys think about this. Do, where do you guys stand on when you play FIFA with your friends? Are you allowed to play international versus club? I mean, I've never made a rule against that, but it's always been club versus club whenever I've played with friends. I have friends who will like take spend 10 minutes choosing their FIFA team and they'll choose a club. And then I'll go in and choose a national team, and oh my god, it's the end of the world! Like just losing <laughs> their shit and and getting angry, and saying you can't do. I don't. I don't know. It was like it's this is, literally this is a video game. It's fantasy, and this is what I should be allowed to do. Is I want to have hypothetical matchups. So like they no, it's it's against. It's like an unwritten rule apparently. Uh, <laughs> having said that, it's. That is weird, a little bit. That's a little weird. I mean, I get it. We don't. I've never done it. Um, I think can. The interesting thing is, I think that rule goes back to the days where, in in I think like early FIFA, the national teams were always wildly better than the clubs. Like you would go in, and then like these teams used to have like five star ratings, and there was a there was an addition. I think it was like the the like mid to late nineties FIFA where the national teams would always be five stars or four and a half stars, and the clubs would have this wild variation between like two and like even the best clubs were maybe five stars, and it was an, it's a very interesting one, and I think it's an old sort of old school rule. So I think um, to the the question at hand, it's. When you're comparing national teams and clubs, which is it's a difficult thing to do because you know the frequency of the competitions is less, the familiarity with the players. Uh, I mean, it can be quite good, but also can be a little bit um, off too. Because, like for example, South American teams, a lot of them don't play together. Yeah, it's different. You know, it's kind of, but it's hard to compare. Um, I guess there is a parallel here because uh, Real Madrid fifties and the Brazilian fifties. The, those two teams were really dominant. Um, I guess the 1970 Brazil team, which was arguably their best one ever, um, that period, Real Madrid didn't really have a great team on the continental side anyway, because um, they right. had a huge hiatus in trophies until the Septima. Uh, whereas Brazil kind of remained constantly good. The 2002 comp is interesting, I think, uh, but Brazil also won the World Cup that that year, so I don't know if it's really underachieving. Maybe they could have done more in 2006 with you know the Ronaldinho and and that era. Um, but also, I, I kind of want to say that um, the Galacticos were the 1.0 Galacticos were 
overrated to a point that they kind of now to me are underrated where I think like we kind of debunked this myth that, you know, maybe Zidane wasn't as great as we thought he was for us. And maybe his peak was with Juve. Um, and maybe, and maybe that team wasn't as good as it's been mythicized. On the flip side, we kind of like this narrative hasn't been pushed enough that now it's kind of being underrated. That 2002-2003, I'd say from like 2000 to 2003, those three years, that particular team played some of the most beautiful football I've ever seen. And maybe they only won one Champions League title. Well, I guess one before Figo and Zidane and then one with them, uh, with Raul winning three altogether. But it was actually a damn good team. Um, I totally agree with that, Yeah, and one more thing that kind of is neither here nor there because – I'm only bringing this up because I'm writing about this particular thing in my book now. There's like that Brazil team um, had a lot of great players outside of Pelé. And similar to Real Madrid, like we always talk about Di Stefano and Puskas. Um, like, for example, Gento was maybe one of the most underrated players in club's history mm-hmm. because he played Absolutely. with Di Stefano and Puskas. And he was he was ahead of his time yeah. with his dribbling. Um, like very fun player to watch his, you know, maybe his decision-making was sometimes off, but, and then you have the, another comp to me as Garincha who never really got the headlines of Pele, but my God, when you watch him play, it's like someone put him in a time machine because I feel like he would hold up just fine today. And there was, there's a, you know, just, just to kind of, um, do my best to answer this question, but those are the parallels I can think of. It's a tough question. Um, yeah. I don't really have an answer to it because I sort of tend to agree with Ohm, especially because um, the international game is so unique, unique in the world, unique in this sport, um, that it's this kind of thing where it only, I mean, yeah, it matters every two years, but really the only time where, I mean, Yanni Infantino recently said that 4 billion people watch the World Cup, but the World Cup's only four years, so... Um, it's hard to because club football is every year, and between World Cups, you can have a dynasty fall and a new one be born. It's hard to compare these mm-hmm. two things. Like mm-hmm. in the last World Cup, twenty fourteen, Real Madrid was just beginning this run of form, and it was no. And I mean, in our view, there was no real reason why we had to have this Madrid team continue being this good forever or whatever. Like, it had just won La Decima. And then in the World Cup before that, uh, it was Barcelona was the, was the like, dy- dynastic team that people still talk about as being, like, you know, this this great, incredible club side. That's two World Cups! That's not that long. So, uh, that's why it's so hard for me to compare. Like, you, you mentioned the, the Real Madrid of the 50s, but between, and then you say that Brazil of the 58 through 70. Well, that period between the 50s and the 70s is, is almost 20 years. So like, that's a long time yeah. for the club. And these clubs change. And, and I mean, in that period, 58 through, through through 70, then the next 20 years, we saw someone a team like Leeds go from being like this mid-level team to winning and being a Champions League-level team to then totally non-existing anymore as, and then being, you know, as a third-division club. So that's, that's – it's hard. It's a hard one. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't want to shit on it too much because, like, it is it, – it I'm not shitting on it. I'm, I'm just – Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just I, – probably wrong choice of words there, but I just – I it is potentially a fun question. I'm interested to it see what you, guys, what you guys have to say in the comments about this one. Yeah, me too. Um, because yeah, like besides Keon, I think Keon made some 
nice, you know, links between Real Madrid and Brazil. But I'd be interested to see if anyone thinks there's any other international team that could possibly represent Real Madrid on the international stage. Yeah. Um, let's go on to the next question. Uh, Kevin Redmond, this is a, um, a classic question for us about, about Madrid. So, uh, hey guys, I'm going to Madrid for the first time in a couple weeks, and I am ecstatic. Unfortunately, I won't be there during a home match, uh, but fortunately, they play Sevilla on that Wednesday night. Any recommendations for match day experiences? Uh, is it best to see the, uh, the to be at the bars of the Bernabeu? Any advice would be awesome. Can't wait to finally see the Bernabeu. And P.S. I'll make sure I'll bring Keon back with me when I leave Paris and head to Madrid, a la Madrid. Um. Killian, Killian <laughs> instead of Keon. Oh, Killian! I thought I thought <laughs> I, I was like, that's an interesting like kidnapping threat, but fair play. <laughs> well, uh, do that. Do the do the second one, not the one I read. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's hard to go wrong going to a bar in Madrid to watch the game. Um, you can go to the Bernabeu, but any, you know, unless you go wander into a bar, you know, in in uh, near the uh, near the Wanda, you're gonna have a good time watching the game, probably. So, I mean, you can go just, to the bars by the Bernabeu. That's great. But I was just gonna say I, I was laughing hysterically, but my mic was muted. But I just was <laughs> during that whole thing. <laughs> I was laughing. <laughs> um, I mean, Kian, you were just in Madrid. Do you have any um, recommendations? Uh, I don't know if the Sevilla game is big enough to have a crazy atmosphere outside the stadium. Like if you go to, if Real are playing an away game against Barca or a big Champions League tie, the stadium will be bonkers before the game, even though the game's not there. But it's worth just checking to see. Um, I'm sure there'll be some experience. But as far as to where to watch the game, uh, underrated places, kind of just Irish pubs. Uh, there's a lot in Madrid. Just kind of Google some of the Irish pubs. There's a lot downtown in Seoul, and they'll show the games. Weirdly, um, Spanish people love Irish pubs. I'll oh, say yeah. that. It's, yeah. it's a weird one, but it's true. Yeah. Um, and there's also a couple um, actual, I, I think there's socio bars or actually like supporter, Real Madrid supporter bars, um, which you can Google. I can't remember the names of them. But it's literally a, a bar for Real Madrid fans. And I guess the, just the, the thing to w- look out for is that if you go on a game day, it's going to be packed. So you might want to go early, maybe like go even for a couple hours before, have a drink, chill, get a good spot, um, because it can get really hard to get a seat. And it's not that enjoyable if you're not really in a good seat. Um, and I guess worst comes to worst, you can go to like places like Vips, which is like their equivalent of, I don't know, Fridays or something. Um, but they won't usually play it with sound. So I hope that helps. I, it's not actually, I don't really know because I've never actually done this. Um, because if I'm in Madrid and I can't watch in the stadium, then it's just on my laptop because it's really risky going to a bar and not having a good, I don't know, not knowing what's going on, having to report about it. So I don't know exactly. But Irish pubs, I think, are a good bet. Just call ahead as well. That's a good. That's a good. Uh, good recommendation. Veeps is pretty. It's a pretty funny one. They. It is. I always thought of Veeps as more of like. Um, I want to say they're Starbucks, but it's like I guess it's you know what. T, t, it's owned by Starbucks. 
Starbucks and Vips have the same owner in Spain. So any anywhere there's a Starbucks, there's Holy a Vips shit. attached to it for That's the most amazing. part. Yeah. It is sort of like a TGI Fridays or whatever. Like it, I mean, yeah, it's just, I don't know what other parallel there is. I don't know. Yeah. It's a um, chain. <laughs> I thought it was, I think it's actually not that bad in terms of coffee, but maybe I don't know anything. I don't know anything about yeah, coffee. That's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Mm. Um, Christopher McCormick, um, Ask us that. Has Ramos always had this ball playing ability? And if so, why are we only noticing it now? I mean, that's you know, a. I mean, he. I mean, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if we're only noticing it now. I mean, personally, I've really like caught my not caught my eye, but I really started thinking about it as a major part of his game in like the 2014-15 season. So that was a while back for me, but. I guess in general, yeah, like, it, it seems we're only appreciating this about Ramos, like, recently, like, the past year or so. And I think that's because, you know, if you if you roll back the tape and you go back five, six years ago, it wasn't necessarily seen as, like, an undebatably good thing to have your center back play or, or like, you know, dribble the ball up the pitch to, to find a really good passing angle because... That we were just in a different time, but ever since like people like Pep Guardiola like popularized, he definitely didn't invent this thing. He he popularized the 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 idea of a center back playing out from the back, and and that being one of his major roles, we've come to accept it more as Guardiola has won a ton of trophies playing that way. Um, but Ramos has always had this. I can even. Think back to like the 2011-12 season where like there's a ton of counterattacks where Ramos wins the ball back, is under a ton of pressure. He gets himself out of pressure, plays a really good pass off the pitch, and then we're away. So it was important in the Mourinho years. This guy always had this ability. And then when we transitioned to a more possession-based game under Ancelotti, you, you began to see it even more, which is why, like I said, the 14-15 season was when I really thought of it as a major part of his game because we we slowed things down. We, we, we began to face more deep blocks, and it was really upon Ramos, especially when teams started to press more. Like Nowadays, like almost every tactical analysis, we're saying the, the, the opposition press like, at one point in the game 90% of the time. This wasn't always the case. It's a fairly recent thing, and now with basically every team pressing you, become really, really important for your center back to be able to evade that pressure and help you play up the pitch. And that's why I think we're really, really noticing and emphasizing the skill that, that he's always had. He's also, he was a right, right back for most of his career. I mean, an attacking right back too. So um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think it's, I, I personally have kind of been blown away about how great he's become. Um, like really, like his legacy to me has just been cemented more and more every year because I think most of it is just because he's a big game player. The ball, I guess, the uh, the technical side of things or what um, Christopher is referring to and his ball playing ability. I think there's a valid point that we're noticing it more now, and I think that has to do with the tactical side of things. Um, because here's a stat for you: the last uh, since June. So essentially, the four games in the World Cup, the three games a season, seven game sample size, small, I know. It's He has had the best passing accuracy of his entire career in these last few months. Um, so, and I think that is also a testament that 
there are more outlets. It's easier to play out of the back when the yeah. the players are moving and players are more technical around you. You guys remember, like there were there were some dark years where I remember, like for example, the worst was like the one of the most traumatic was against Dortmund in that Champions League oh, exit, yeah. the one where we lost like by eight goals and Xabi Alonso gave away the penalty. I think it was four one. Actually, I don't remember, but uh, <laughs> it was definitely 4-1. It really definitely seemed eight, like an etern- it really seemed like an eternal like fifty point loss. Uh, but it was like that game, and 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 actually, ironically, now that I think about, it, he played right back in that game because Mourinho play, tried to shoehorn him in, and and played Pepe and Varane at the same time, I believe, because because uh, we had like a bit of a weak link at the right back position, and games like that where you look at schematically. And the way Dortmund were pressing, it was just impossible to pass from the back. And I mean, like, you remember there's so many of those examples throughout the years. Whereas now you have this kind of coherent strategy building. And players are actually, like, really doing well with the ball. Like, you know, last year even, he had a... Ramos is famous for those diagonal cross-field passes. Last year, he misplaced a ton of those. Um, last week, one of them hit Carvajal, and Carvajal got the assist against Leganes. Um yeah. So I I think what Christopher is alluding to that are we noticing it now? I think there's a valid point there. Yeah. All right. Last thing, um, and then we're we're at uh, because we actually are sick. We're already at almost an hour, which is ridiculous. Um, uh, I wanted to answer this question. This is specific. This uh, even though. Um, so just a reminder: if you get if you toss us five dollars a month, you get your question answered on every show. Um, and three dollars a month, you got access to our patron only shows. Um, this. Question and you get preference in your questions. Um, though we can't, we don't guarantee that we answer them every month. This one's coming from a non-guaranteed patron. I wanted to answer it because I thought it's it's, it's cool. Petru Matisku uh, asks us, uh, "Hey guys, it seems that you know some stuff about basketball. Explain to me how good is Laurie Markkanen? His brother once played for Real Madrid football, and I did not know that. Uh, Laurie Markkanen plays for the Chicago yeah. Bulls. He's kind of a stretch five. Um, I think, if, and Keon, you can dis- disagree with me if you want, uh, or if you, if you d- let me know if you disagree, but I think he actually does have a lot of potential. He's clearly got an NBA level stroke. He can shoot the ball really well. The question for me is whether he can defend, uh, at the NBA level. He can, it looks like he can rebound and shoot well though. And if you can do that, you're going to have a career, which is pretty cool. So now that. Uh, Petru brought this up. Now it's coming back to me that over the summer, someone pointed this out somewhere and I was like blown away. And I forgot about it until this second when I looked him up. His brother, his name is Eero Markkinen, 27 years old, plays uh, somewhere in Finland, I think, barely plays. Uh, <laughs> he was with Real Madrid B in cool. 2014, made 10 appearances, scored two goals. <sighs> And then left uh, to I don't know even <laughs> can't even pronounce the names he if, went. If it's if it says that he it was also like played for Real Madrid, but even though the appearances say zero, that means he must have been on the match day squad like at least once. Yeah, and I just do not remember that like at all. No, that was 2014-2015 season. I guess he was part of the squad. Um, well, so. This is there was something interesting, something else interesting about it. Oh, apparently he, I guess, showed up to preseason overweight uh, huh. at some point in 2015, and then 
uh, around that time, I think Real Madrid just let him go. Okay, so here's he, here's the answer. <laughs> he in 2014 September 2014, <laughs> he was in Real Madrid's 25 man squad for the Champions League, but did not make any appearances. There you go. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So he w- he was there for like, why was he there? Like a homegrown rule or something? But he he doesn't count as homegrown, does no, he? No, he doesn't count as homegrown. No. I have no idea. He was just there because he was there. Yeah, that's that's cool though. One of the great life mysteries. Yeah, marketing <laughs> the player is just add to what Gabe said. Um, I don't know how many people care at this point in the podcast, but Petru clearly does. So, uh, he in a lot of ways he was vindicated, wasn't he? Because yeah, the Bulls traded up to get him. And everyone criticized it because then they also gave yeah. away Jimmy Butler. Um, turns out Markkanen's a stud. Like, yeah, he's big real balls, good. Can take game-winning shots. Possibly even like someone you could build around like cautiously. Like he has a high ceiling. Um, he's adding size this summer. Can switch on defense. Modern modern player in the sense that he can shoot. Is a big guy. He reminds Seems me a like little he, bit of uh, of Porzingis actually. Like in that. Yeah. Not quite there, right? But but definitely has that like has has a lot of that game to him. I think. Yeah, yeah he was on my he was on my fantasy team for a long time last season. He served me well, so so I also I also jump in and give a ringing endorsement of this guy. He's a quality player. Hey, awesome! All right, guys. Um, Patreon shoutouts. Patreon shoutouts. Do it. Um, <clears throat> as you guys know, if you. Pledge on patreon.com slash managing Madrid. You get bonus rewards. You get at least two extra additional weekly shows covering Castilla, the players on loan, but also a midweek show covering the Champions League, Copa matches, midweek La Liga matches, mailbags, etc. You also get different rewards based on your pledge. And one of your rewards, if you pledge $10 or more, is you get a specific shout out on the podcast. Um, by the way, there is someone who, who pledged $9.99. And I think they did it intentionally because they don't want to shout out. But I'm giving you shout out. Um, <laughs> well, they, sh- <laughs> I'm not going to say your name, but symbolic shout out. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Appreciate yeah, it. Shout yeah. out. To you. You're cool. Shout out to these $10 patrons. Sergio Monleon, Tyler Dixon, Raul Gutierrez, Gary Kohut, Nick DeStefani, Raga Potluri, Bjorn Salvador, Dan Berthy, John Fernandez, Frederick Sundros, Adolfo Chamali, Perez, Anas Alazawi, Sheikh Atiri, Red Bat, Leon Stavronakis, Armin Gashi, Eric Rogers, Nick Ribeiro, Yahya Ibrahim, Said Mahad, Vicky Cohen, Magnus Lext, Jason Fitz, Anton Hackberg, Solomon Ortiz, Jeanette, Jimmy Obade, and Daniel Smith. You guys are Thank the you actual so best. Thank yeah, you actually, so much. Yeah. Uh, this is really wonderful thank you uh and guys feel better seriously we have actual um soccer, you know actual football coming back uh soon <laughs> yeah uh all right what do you have any any plugs for this week Keon? ohm anything coming up that's okay like, is that allowed <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Go for it. Go for it. We do it all the time. Go for it. <laughs> okay, so so I'm gonna start writing for a new site. Like it's um, okay. Keon well, that's Keon. not allowed. All right, cut the no. cut his mic. Cut his mic. <laughs> I'm still writing for Managing Madrid. Don't worry, I'm still writing for Managing Madrid. But Keon knows what I'm talking about. It's um, it's called Between the Posts. It's Very gonna cool. be like writing tactical match reports, but like at at more of like. At a simpler level, like at, for, more for the average fan cool. to, to understand what's going on in the game. Like you remove the jargon and all of that. 
I mean, I don't know if you guys know 11, Tegan 11 on Twitter. Yeah. He's one of the chief editors for that. So oh, great. That's, that's that, really good. So my first article on that will be the Real Madrid Athletic Bilbao game. And then after that, I'll be rotated around to all sorts of different matches. They were nice. Yeah, so that's something that, that, that I'm going to start. And then other than that, I'm going to keep trying to do the weekly um, the weekly videos like on the best player. Like I wanted to do one on Benzema, but you know, I just didn't have the time then. But like pretty much every week, I'm going to try to do like our best awesome. player from, from a league match. So. Uh, that's awesome. I don't know what the, my column is going to be about yet. <laughs> I sort of make that determination at the end of the week. Um, we have a uh, Let's Fix Football coming out this week. We're launching season two. We decided not to do streaming because apparently the only way to do streaming and do it well, I've talked to a lot of people who I know who are very successful at it, is to do it absolutely all the time. So we um, are normal people and do not have the ability to do that. So we decided we're going to do uh, just normal podcast. So Let's Be Football Season 2 drops um, either tonight or tomorrow. So check that out on your podcast, listening, whatever device. Kian? Kian? Well, yes. Yes. Do you have anything you want to um, <laughs> let's just, let's just shut, shut it down. We're, we're all literally sick. like I just I don't, I'm going, trying to figure out how to pull my. How did you make it? How did we all make it through an hour of this? I, I don't. I'm still. Well, I, I blacked out a few times. So don't, yeah. I have, if I have you're, no. If you're still about with about us and you're not a patron, <laughs> you clearly have the commitment to become one. What are you doing? Go and talk to the <laughs> All right, everybody. We're shutting this down. I'll see. I'll, we'll talk soon. Uh, until Wednesday, guys. Ala Madrid. Ala Madrid. Please don't get me wrong. See, I forgive you and the song will call the likely lands. But if it's left to you, I know exactly what you do with all the dreams we have. Cause blood runs thicker, how it's thicker, Steve, you know. It's important to you. I try to make you see But you don't want to know If you puzzle some along when you're forgiven In a song or out to touch my life A song or out to my arms when they need it Then these songs welcome back outside My blood runs thicker I'm with the constitution That's important to you It's important to me I try to make you see But you don't want to know What became of the dreams we had? Oh, what became of forever? Oh, what became of forever? See, I forgive you in a song called the Likely Land We all bought the ones we taught about We wrote the songs, it's still the dreams we have But blood runs thicker, oh, with thickest things you know That's important to you, it's important to me I try to make you see, but you don't want to know Oh, what became of the Likely Land what became of the dreams we had? Oh, what became of forever? Oh, what became of forever?
Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions. Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes. Enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions.